Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, the creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftist color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. We're doing a, as I like to say, a quote unquote live podcast episode this time around once again because we had, unfortunately, presidential debates last night. Um, this was the, I want to say what, third debate, right? Um, third debate, September debate for the Democratic primary. Um, lots of twists and turns and interesting parts of the night that we're going to discuss. And for our guest, we have with us actually Exer Alcala. Exer, go ahead and introduce yourself for the listening audience. Hello, listening audience. My name is Hector uh, or Hector <laughs> Alcala. Um, I'm an assistant professor at uh, Stony Brook University in the program in public health. Um, I teach primarily um, health disparities, social determinants of health, um, and health communication. Um, in terms of my research, what I do is I examine the impact of early life adversity in terms of uh, later life health and access and utilization of healthcare. And another big focus of my research is looking at health disparities and particularly how racism and discrimination impact health of adults. Uh, so, so anything wait, I say? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so basically what you're trying to tell us is you have no reason to be on this call and discuss anything that happened with the presidential election, right? Since you like focus on race and that kind of research, correct? Absolutely not. Yeah, it's all superfluous. <laughs> we, should, we should just ignore me and everything I have to say. <laughs> you know, just like the candidates. Right. <laughs> um, but go ahead. You were going to continue saying something else after that. My apologies for the interruption. Yeah, no worries. So um, all ex opinions expressed are my own and do not represent any of my employers, colleagues, or Twitter followers. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice disclaimer. Um, I think we should start saying that all the time, right, Richard? I mean, like, right. ultimately, the, the, the opinions of our guests are also not our own sometimes. Um, so that's important. Also, Richard is here. Say hello, Richard. Uh, hello, everyone, and thanks uh, for joining us for this. And uh, just a big shout out and thank you to uh, all the new uh, patrons and uh, to everybody that's been liking and sharing uh, the work we've been doing. I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point because uh, I should remind everyone to please definitely follow us on social media. Um, also, we're now on YouTube. I've been really bad about uploading the videos, but we are on YouTube. The podcast is on YouTube for those of you who like to kind of get your podcast through YouTube. Um, but anyway, you can find us by searching anywhere and everywhere for Left POC, and that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also obviously find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love if you left us a review and a rating on iTunes. It really helps other people find the podcast, and if you love it, please definitely give us a rating and review. Um, and the other thing I just wanted to add is as a reminder for people to check out the Patreon page. And that's not an ask for money, by the way. Actually, I suggest going to the Patreon page because everything we have on it is free. So obviously the podcasts are posted there, but also books, the references, additional resources. Um, so make sure that you check it out. You don't have to donate, but if you feel so inclined and have the disposable income of a dollar or more per month, we'd love to receive it, um, you can donate on patreon.com slash leftpoc. And the other cool thing is, as I sort of hinted at a second ago, um, all of our content is always free. We don't believe in having paywalls. We don't believe in like every other podcast being free and one being paid. Everything is always free because we want um, the discussions we have here to be accessible for everyone, no matter their income levels. Um, so yeah, 
please keep that in mind. Give us a shout out. Hit us up on social media. We'd love to hear from you. Um, and the last thing I wanted to say while we're in the area of disclaimers is, um, unfortunately, I had some technical difficulties today, so I'm actually calling in to my own conference as I'm recording this. So please accept my sincerest apologies for any sort of um, feedback or strange noise issues or anything like that and just like kind of crappy quality on my end. Uh, Richard is going to be the captain of the ship today. Uh, so yeah, anyway, uh, all that being said, <laughs> thank you all once again. Welcome to the Left EOC, Left Pocket Project podcast. Uh, and we're talking about the debates from last night. I keep sighing because that was basically my response all night. It was a mix between sighing and screaming. Uh, what about y'all? What do you think? Um, First impression. If I have to say something positive, I thought the interviewers and the moderators did some uh, a fairly decent job of pushing people on the record. Uh, particularly, um, we saw you know Biden get called to task, and um, I believe uh, Klobuchar uh, additionally, and both of them got grilled for their um, essentially racial politics in their past history. But in terms of what the candidates were doing, uh, I wasn't too thrilled with what they were doing overall. I thought you know a lot of them were ostensibly repeating what they had said in prior debates, not really elaborating. And there was a lot of you know, calls for kumbaya civility from a lot of the candidates. And I don't have time to listen to that. If, if I wanted to listen to that, then, you know, I'll, I'll go move to South Bend, uh, Indiana and cheer for uh, Mayor Buttigieg. Yeah, uh, I, I, to try and pick out something positive, I would agree with the that the moderators uh, did a better job than uh, we've seen in some of the pr past debates as far as uh, holding candidates accountable uh, to the degree that we see in these debates. Uh, the other kind of positive point I would say is that uh, occasionally the candidates do say or touch on issues or uh, points that were important. And although I doubt the sincerity uh, of uh, the candidates <laughs> when they express most of them, uh, like, I see some value in in having them express. Uh, I I'll pick that apart later. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting that you guys started with positives because, um, yeah, <laughs> my my first impressions were definitely not positive. But I do agree that the moderators were. How should I put this? I mean, I think the moderators. One of the I just I should add one of the comments that I saw following the debates was that people were upset that the moderators didn't ask Bernie specific questions about his plans on environment and criminal justice. And I was just like, that's not ultimately their job. <laughs> like, they don't, their job is not to ask candidates, specific candidates about their like premier platform issues um, necessarily. Like I know that they always go to uh, Julian Castro for immigration stuff, but that's just because they're racist. Like, I don't think it's about, I don't, it's about tokenism in that case sometimes um, more than necessarily his being um, a candidate who's like focused a lot on this. I think it generally boils down to like, oh, he's Mexican American, so we're going to ask him the immigration question. Um, but I think that the, I thought that the moderators did do well um, in some instances and in other instances that we can get into later. I was very frustrated just because Jorge Ramos has his own issues uh with regard to foreign policy and things like that that i have major bones to pick over um yep. but <laughs> but in mm -hmm. general in general i agree and i especially think um i don't remember her last name but Lindsay, uh one of the female commentators from last night uh she had mentioned uh she had a very good question for kamala harris and then also i have to give props where credit is due but jorge ramos did have a good question uh for several questions and several follow-ups 
uh, to Biden, who just, as you all mentioned, you know, he just was not mm-hmm. wanting to give decent responses. So he at least like nailed or tried to nail him on that, made him make a fool of himself more or less. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> so I think Lindsay, I would agree. I think Lindsay Davis was, you know, she was the only female moderator on the stage. And I think she did the best out of all four of the moderators that were there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, so let's take a shift to issues. And now I am really going to let Richard head the ship because, um, as I said, my sound quality is pretty bad, uh, but I'll interject here and there. So yeah, Richard, why don't you guys, you and Hector actually can talk about some of the issues that were brought up over the night, your thoughts, um, and I'll chime in here and there when I feel particularly angry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I guess uh, just some of the kind of general things from the debate that uh, stuck out to me or that I thought uh, were worthy of note and may not have uh, may not get mentioned in some of the other coverage. Uh, it's one thing particularly that sticks out to me when I was watching some of the post debate coverage uh, was uh, how hard the Kamala Harris is being pushed as a serious candidate, despite the fact that she's pulling forth in her home state, which is like disastrous for a presidential campaign. So uh, that and that's uh, she's maybe been up to second at, at the highest which is just as far as like the, the traditional ways that the media would measure a candidate's likelihood of success being fourth in your home state would be awful <laughs> like and and that the the key takeaways were you know how well she performed i think was a, a big part uh another thing is, is the the kind of the the show of it all the the idea of having these large uh, circus-like debates was, you know, openness and inclusivity. But uh, you know, there's about 275 registered candidates for the Democratic part primary, and so this is the best 20 to 10 that they could find. And several of these candidates are still polling, you know, at or around uh, zero to one to two percent uh, in various polls. So like, there we could have had different candidates with different ideas, but the measurements of what makes a a viable candidacy changes to fit whatever makes the status quo uh, able to be put up on the stage, in my opinion. And then uh, one of the other ones was uh, it was hard for me to pay attention to those other candidates that are polling second, third, fourth in their home states and in the single digits nationally as as uh, serious candidates. But sometimes they did mention issues. Uh, and uh, I think one of the issues, not necessarily in a positive light uh, for O'Rourke, was uh, the how essentially the shooting in Texas awoke him to the the problems that Trump and racism presented in this country, which is like a larger issue that we'll get into. But uh, I guess, Hector, uh, if you wanted to kind of uh, touch on some of the other things from the candidates in general that you noticed or that you thought were, no. Yeah, well, the thing that I thought was funny is that, you know, they had a conversation about foreign policy and this is really the deepest one that they've had in all of the debates, I think, uh, in terms of the length of time that was devoted to it. But the focus really was on China specifically and about the trade war. But I thought, you know, given who this audience is and what the Democratic Party tends to do, that they'd have some sort of commentary on Hong Kong, uh, but nothing was mentioned on it. Uh, and I was pleasantly surprised that, you know, Russia didn't get brought up for whatever reason, because that t- tends to be 
like red meat for centrist Democrats, and they thought that they would, you know, play that up. Um, and not surprisingly, um, you know, no, there was no mention of Palestine in the debate again. And I think, you know, it hasn't mm -hmm. been mentioned in the debates thus far. So that's not entirely surprising. But it, it went into places that I thought were relatively safe, but it also avoided things that I thought would be really red meat for the, you know, DC types that really like to uh, you know, prop up uh, warmongering essentially in terms of their foreign policy. So that's what I found interesting in the foreign policy segment. Yes, uh, foreign policy is definitely a, a big part, which I think we will definitely try to devote a significant amount of the, our time to because you point out some very excellent points. And especially uh, I hadn't noticed, but I think that's a, a great observation about how Russia wasn't a part of the debate despite the, you know, the two years uh, that we saw after the election that it dominated and and how much they did spend talking about foreign policy and then the warmongering and it's typical but uh, I, I have a feeling wendy wants to mention something um yeah i just wanted to add to that for me i i also kind of i don't know i had some moments of checking out towards the end i was taking notes <laughs> in the beginning and then i just was like i my body right now does not have my my mind nor my body have the attention span for this um but from my notes from the beginning, uh, some things that stood out to me in terms of issues that were addressed head on, and I think well, um, I was actually, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, do we need to appoint Beto as like the, the racial justice coordinator for the administration that wins or something? I mean, it's kind of interesting that he's doing better than many other candidates, I think, about like very boldly addressing racism the only problem of course is that like he's not connecting the dots between like his pro-corporate pro-oil um like past with how that affects like how that sort of um affects racism and empowers racism um so like how can you disconnect those two things i mean it happens all the time in the democratic party but it's just sort of interesting that i think he's doing a better job right now addressing race and racism um, but he's not connecting the dots between his own policy flaws and how those things can actually contribute to further racial inequality in our country. Um, I also would just want to add that I found it interesting that Castro had a moment where he linked, he, he was asked a question about racism and he started talking about racism and then he shifted to talking about police brutality. And I thought that was a really good connection because um, a lot of times when they talk about race, they sort of isolate it to specific people or like, you know, Nazis or, uh, you know, like uh, the, the shooter in El Paso, for example. But in this case, what he did is he sort of very smoothly, I think, bridged that sometimes not broached gap subject between um, policing and police brutality and racial violence um, and racism in general. So I thought that was just sort of as a positive thing, um, an issue that stood out to me that I thought was was good. Um, I also just wanted to add, speaking of Kamala, because you all brought her up, um, and particularly you, Richard. <laughs> I'm sorry. You had mentioned that. No, but it's, it's important. I mean, you mentioned that she wasn't polling well in her state. Um, obviously, we saw Lindsay Davis, and thank you for adding her last name, Hector. Um, we saw her mention, you know, that Kamala had a bad record, basically, as a prosecutor and had done all these things. And so it was nice to kind of hear, as much as I have issues with Tulsi Gabbard, it was nice to hear some of Tulsi's points from the previous debate reiterated and reinforced by the commentator um, because I think, or by the moderator, because I think some people, and including Kamala herself, had sort of dismissed all of that. She was like, well, this 
Tulsi woman is like a Russiagate person and is polling low, so it doesn't matter. Like, who cares what she thinks? But then it was kind of, and then she also, of course, was dismissing it as not true. Like, I saw some of the old footage again from the previous debate where Kamala had denied what Tulsi was saying. She's like, everyone's lying about my record. And so it was kind of nice for Lindsay to be like, no, actually, like, your record is real. Um, I think it sort of gave it some credence uh, or some credibility, I should say, for her to say it and not just another candidate on the stage that's Kamala's competitor. Another point that I'd add about Kamala is just that um, she continues to try to present herself as a progressive prosecutor. Um, but I think sometimes, and, and she does this in a way where she's trying to say like, look, I'm going to put Trump in jail too, you know, so she, but she wants to have it both ways. She wants to be like, progressive prosecutor, but then also law and order. And where that falls short, and I think particularly fell short last night, is when she said something about Trump not, he's not fulfilling the promises that he made during the campaign. Yeah. And I'm I'm like, <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> like we, right? He fulfills those promises. Like, we're all going to end up in freaking camps, more than the people who already are in camps, which is like atrocious and awful. But I'm saying like, if he has, if he had it his way, and if his promises from the campaign were fulfilled, we wouldn't be on this podcast right now. We'd probably be in prison for like communism or something, or being of color. Um, <laughs> God knows what else. And we fill in the blank identity, like that all of us may possess. That that would be a reason for us to be in prison. But also, it would be a question of like, okay, then we'd have a what else? A border wall, um, an embargo, or like more trade drama with China. We just we would have gone to war with way more countries. Like I mean, this is I'm just trying to figure out like what is the promise that you want him to keep other than perhaps a strong economy? Like yeah. what are I mean, the, what does that promise look like, you know? I, I think there are promises that he made that she could have specifically highlighted and, and it would have made sense. For example, the drain the swamp promise that he made and it certainly hasn't kept. But yes, in the abstract, you know, my comment and my reaction on Twitter was, you know, the same as yours. I don't want Trump to keep his promises. You know, this obsession with law, orders, and civility isn't going to help us when we have, you know, a white supremacist in the White House. And she needs to wake up to how that's being perceived by her audience. And it dovetails into her tone deafness with her own record and her inability to confront that. And uh, I think uh, you make uh, excellent points, both of you. And then the, uh, you said civility, which was actually something that stuck out to me from the introduction of the debate, which was uh, Stephanopoulos mentioned that the debate was going to be informative and civil. And uh, I, I questioned both of those, but uh, and <laughs> primarily, especially when uh, with uh, foreign policy and with the uh, criminal justice, whether that's what the arguing for draconian and uh, like atro atrocious practices is considered civil because the, the incivility of the violence that's incurred uh, by the victims of these kinds of policies is far enough away from the person who is advocating it that it's not seen as that person being violent or advocating violence, but that the violence is an unfortunate, uh, you know, outcome of something that was inevitable and the best option available. And that is uh, extremely problematic for me. And I think and it manifests well in uh, Harris's uh, criminal justice record or Biden's record in general and uh, several other aspects of the Democratic Party. But uh, one of the first kind of uh, major things that they tried to tackle as the debate, and I think we can kind of touch here on, is the ACA. And uh, one of the things I wanted to mention about the ACA, which uh, I feel is sometimes lost in the kind of 
fanfare over Obama within uh, kind of beyond the Democratic Party into the general populace of less engaged political uh, folks that uh, still look at the Obama presidency as uh, something to be, you know, uh, I guess, reminisced <laughs> about. Uh, but that the ACA was, uh, we often hear about the mandate that came from the Heritage Foundation, but the uh, Christian Science Monitor uh, back when, uh, I want to say 2012, had an article that mentioned, and to quote, they said, in February 1974, Republican President Nixon, or Richard Nixon, proposed it, in essence, today's Affordable Care Act. So uh, it mentions that private insurances or insurers were delighted, uh, but the Democrats wanted a more uh, Social Security and Medicare system. So this this kind of argument goes back towards uh, all the way back to the Nixon administration. And essentially, the the market solution was a Republican plan. And now we've gotten to the point where uh, it was a, a theme in a lot of the post-debate coverage and the leading up to the debate about how being too harsh on Obama was uh, negatively affecting the candidates. And so we saw a lot of uh, positive talking about uh, Obama in this debate and particularly about the kind of concept of building and expanding the ACA, preserving the ACA and this kind of market-based solution. And the, the idea is like that was a Republican solution. It was when we tried to when it was tried to be marketed and sold to get votes uh, when Democrats had 60 seats in the Senate uh, to get Republican votes. It was often said it's a Republican plan. It was Mitt Romney's Massachusetts plan. It was it's a Republican idea. And I think it's important to note that uh, essentially the Democratic Party is defending Republican policy. That's how far we've shifted to the right. And that people that are going for a more government oriented or a socialist oriented uh, solution are being placed uh, outside to the left of the Democratic Party, where in the 70s, that's where the Democrats were. So that market shift in uh, uh, the positions of the parties, I think, is important when we discuss where we move forward from the ACA. Yeah, and they did an effective job at sort of framing um, public the public option or even, you know, Medicare for all as a negative thing because they were scaremongering saying that it will eliminate your choices. You can't choose who your healthcare provider is. And that, unfortunately, still scares the shit out of people. And that framework that we've heard, I think Harris invoked it, we heard it from Biden, is going to be effective at tamping down support. So I'm not terribly surprised that that's what they want to do, because none of these candidates, by and large, are going to have an interest in reigning in private health insurance. Because underlying all of this is a discussion of rationing health care, right? The inevitable thing is that rationing is going to happen irrespective of whatever system we have, because we have a finite amount of health care. And whether or not it's our current system in which, you know, some people get no health care at all, and some people get a lot of health care, or if it's Medicare for all, a system where there might be rationing where people who currently get a lot of health care get less or slightly less health care because of it. And that conversation gets lost in the wash because we're framing it as choice and choice is the underlying, you know, market forces are good, individual choice is good, a frame of reference for them. And sort of related to this conversation in the debate, the shadow of Obama still looms big. He's still sort of framed as the party or the de facto party leader. And it really created, in my opinion, some interesting sort of pretzel logic that the candidates were invoking. And I'm glad that Biden got called out on this, you know, that he wants to take credit uh, for Obama's legacy when it's convenient, but then when it's not convenient, he wants to distance himself from Obama. And sort of my question overall for this is we had a few people on the stage 
sort of invoke Obama by saying, you know, I can rebuild the Obama coalition, which is sort of, I think, specifically or paraphrasing what Castro said about himself. And I think to myself, is that even possible? Um, and is that advisable? Because, you know, Obama, the Obama coalition was, you know, in theory, multiracial. It included working class individuals who were, uh, you know, uh, in unions. Uh, but the landscape has changed such that we may not be able to get that coalition back together, both because of factors within Obama and his administration itself and for extraneous factors. For example, you know, voter suppression, laws that make it harder for people of color to vote. So I don't see that part of the coalition being able to be as strong as it was before, uh, but also Obama's own policies. And this was a part of the debate that was really hit upon, the immigration policies. If you want, you know, Latinos and other uh, groups that are highly uh, composed of immigrant populations to be in your coalition, you have to account for um, you know, Obama's draconian deportation policies and what that means to reforming this coalition. Yeah, I really appreciated that interjection um, by, I guess it was Jorge Ramos at that point who asked that question um, specifically. But I think that, I mean, I want to go into immigration a little bit um, further later on, but I thought that that, I agree that that was really something that I'm glad was brought up. Um, because again, you can't have it both ways. This reminds me very much of, I feel like I have flashbacks to 2016 because it's something that Clinton did as well. Um, so it was like she wanted to take credit for stuff that Bill did that was quote unquote positive, but then not the negative stuff. And then the same thing with Obama, you know, things that happened during the Obama administration while she was secretary of state, um, or even subsequent to that, she wanted to take credit for, but then none of the bad stuff. Um, so there's always this kind of weird push pull with his legacy. But I, I think it's funny because, you know, American liberals spend so much time talking about how obsessed uh, people are in foreign countries with their leaders, you know, like so-called dictators or whatever. Um, and one of the things that comes to mind all the time is like North Korea, right? The DPRK uh, portrayal of Kim Jong-un um, and the entire Kim family. But it's just sort of interesting how they have, they've built this sort of um, idea that there's like a cult-like status around all these members of the Kim family and blah, blah, blah. But then I'm like, what are we doing? Like, we can't even have a debate without bringing up Obama's name. Like, it's been what, three years, four years, three years um, since Obama's been out of office. And we saw this already during the 2016 debate. And it's just like, guys, you got to move forward, you know, like onward together, as Hillary says, right? <laughs> we have to keep <laughs> pushing in some direction that like Obama's not the end all be all of the Democratic Party or shouldn't be. Um, and certainly isn't the end all be all of like, you know, um, center right policy, I guess I should say, because I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't call them center left at this point. Um, the other thing I wanted to add really quickly is I thought your points about um, insurance and the role of choice on both, for, from both of y'all were really important. Um, and I just, I felt like the entire time I was listening, I was like, is this the libertarian debate? Like, why are we talking about choice when it comes to health insurance? And it was done in such a way where it's just like, as if we have a system right now where I can just go to any doctor and say, see me, when in actuality, first of all, we have to look them up to see if that provider is covered by our insurance. Um, second of all, we have to go, you know, call that doctor, wait sometimes for months just to get a basic visit. You know, it's, it's absurd to assume that what we have right now is like full of choice and all these options when in actuality we're extremely limited, particularly based on the type of insurance you have. Um, and not only limited in terms of choice, but also limited on the basis of how much it's going to cost. So like right now I've been navigating 
this system in very unique ways because I'm pregnant and like learning all sorts of stuff and surprises around the corner every five seconds about how much a test costs or how much an exam costs um, that I didn't have to worry about before. And so I can't imagine for people who have terminal illnesses and things like that, where they're just trying to figure out basic modes of care and have no guidance on this point and no no assistance on how to to sort of figure out what they're eligible for, how much it's going to cost, what kind of provider they can go to. Um, and I also think that, again, this, the idea of choice is strange because, like, this is a basic human need. Like, you should want the people of your country to be healthy. You should want, even if you're thinking about it from a purely, like, conservative standpoint, you should want your workers to be healthy so they can be productive and help you make more money. And there's just no concern about that at all. It's just, it's a very um, sort of, I don't know, there's like a necropolitical aspect to it. Like they just expect us all to die and, and you know, do as much work as we can until we fade away. And it's it's not good. I mean, I, it's just strange to me that we're at a point now where the Democratic Party is arguing over whether or not people can live or should live um, and who's eligible for that. They're not saying it that way, but it's certainly once you read between the lines is what's being said. I also just wanted to add um, that this is where I was frustrated with um, Bernie Sanders the most, I think, even though I know some people were like, he did great, you know, like he really <laughs> nailed him. And I'm like, no, he didn't, because he only nailed it for people who already know his healthcare policy ideas. If you already have an understanding of what Medicare for all is, then you're good. But if you don't, and it's this debate and, or these types of discussions is your first introduction to Medicare for all, you would come away from that being confused because A, everyone and their mother is calling it Medicare for all. Um, but B, you would come away from it thinking that the guy who's like the, the person who really set this up and got the ball rolling on it doesn't seem to have a clear answer about what's going to happen and what it looks like. And while I have significant issues, reservations about Elizabeth Warren on multiple policy fronts, I think that she did, the way she explained the way that taxation would work, to me was much more clear and seemed to be in the framing more like something that the average voter would want. So she said, when she was asked, how is she gonna pay for it? She said, basically, in short, we're gonna tax millionaires and billionaires and corporations more than they already pay and we'll pay for it with that. Whereas Bernie's answer was sort of like, he, would, he, he was of course going to be asked about if the middle class is going to be taxed further or not. And he didn't have an adequate answer for it. And I think at this point, like, dude, you've been working on this for how many decades now? Um, there has to be a short, quick, easy, di easily digestible answer for this type of issue because people come away from it thinking, oh shit, my taxes are gonna go up and then my healthcare is gonna cost more too. And that should not be the takeaway from a discussion like this. He also should have better go-to examples, I think, um, of the countries that he cites. So like he talks a lot about Canada, Canada and Scandinavia and stuff, but he just says like, oh, the medicine is cheaper there, but it's deeper than that, right? Like if I go to Spain and I fall and break my leg, I'm not gonna be expected to pay thousands of dollars, A, to just get to the hospital and B, to see a doctor. So I think that there should be a quick, easy example to talk about like perhaps another country. If, even if he's gonna go with you know the countries that he always goes to, he needs to at least have a quick, easy response about what that looks like in practice. So that people can have an idea because the average American hasn't left their hometown, you know, hasn't left their immediate vicinity, immediate state. And so people don't have an idea of what the other options are necessarily. And so I think if that were, if that were clearly laid out, it would help people have a better understanding and to more easily envision what an equitable healthcare system would look like and one that like is actually more 
um, focused on your survival and your genuine health as opposed to just like how long is it going to take for you to die? Yeah. Well, I think I was a little bit disappointed with how I mean, both Biden and uh, sorry, both uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, Elizabeth Warren didn't really push back when Biden said, you know, there's no time. We cannot wait four years for Medicare for all to take an eff take effect, essentially. And, you know, th that's true. A policy like that can't ha be implemented overnight. But the real response to that should be, you know, ACA wasn't implemented overnight. It was passed in 2010. A keystone policy of that was Medicaid expansion. That didn't happen until 2014. So, what you have to challenge Biden with is, you know, your policy that you're so proud of had the same limitation because realistically it's going to be rolled out over a long period of time because there's a lot of changes that need to happen to ensure that there's this continuity of care and people aren't just dropped suddenly and left without healthcare coverage. So that's something where I think that, you know, anyone advocating for medical for all should be able to succinctly say, you know, you're going to be covered and it's going to take a while, but the end result is going to be worth it. No, I think those are excellent points. And I mean, uh, the ACA website comes to mind, too, when it comes to the rollouts of these things. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. That wasn't exactly a spectacular performance either, but Democrats just kind of give them like give that a pass because it didn't doesn't do them any good they think to kind of hold themselves accountable in that way and i think that the points that you raise about the the framing is incredibly important and also as far as like the responses towards the the framing uh, and i think it goes a little bit back towards my point about how uh, the aca is essentially a republican policy in that like uh the critiques for or the like the criticisms of medicare for all uh, is you know are, are, is this going to raise middle class taxes and are they going to lose their health insurance? Klobuchar specifically, you know, 149 million people are going to lose their health insurance. Like that sounds a lot more ominous than, uh, you know, 149 million people will not have, uh, you know, free at point of access and treatment, uh, you know, medical care. That, that, like, the, the, you're, they're intentionally taking this ominous, uh, phrasing and it, it's based out of kind of a Republican and as Wendy pointed out, kind of a libertarian, uh, thinking around, uh, around healthcare. And the Democratic Party is starting to sound more like, uh, Ron Paul did in 2000 and back in his debate. And so, like, I think those are very important, uh, aspects that, that were raised. And then also the idea of choice. And uh, Warren at least got the line out there about, you know, I don't I haven't met anybody that, you know, like their health insurer uh, is people like their, the people that provide the care. And I think one of the other aspects that is important and it'll help kind of uh, segue us to a lot of the other things that we want to talk about. But I think has a very relevant point here is uh, the racial aspect of healthcare, And we know that even if, uh, you know, we get access or even if the at the point of care that, for instance, uh, black women have uh, been seeing high mortality rates uh, related towards uh, birthing and early child rearing. Uh, famously, Serena Williams had an issue that kind of category that kind of uh, encapsulated how part of it is simply the disregard and the of the value of the black women's uh, articulations of their own experience, let alone uh, their experience in, in America and politically and beyond. But uh, so I think that we see that in healthcare, 
that even when they get to the point of getting access and getting treatment and, and getting the healthcare, it's still inadequate and that there's a racial component as well. And uh, I think that we see that in all the other issues that were talked about as well tonight, being education, guns or anything else, or immig uh, immigration and uh, foreign policy. So uh, with that, uh, uh, Hector, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I'm healthcare and, you know, I'm a public health researcher is one of the aspects that, you know, encompass my research life. So what I like to let people know is that health insurance does not guarantee utilization of healthcare. What we ultimately want is people to utilize healthcare and not just have access to it. And the barriers to access are sometimes racism, right? It's not just racism experienced within the hospital or healthcare setting, but the all the racism that encompasses our daily lives. So something like giving everyone health insurance isn't going to necessarily tackle that, right? We need to change change the way our um, healthcare providers interact with patients. We need to change the way that receptionists interact with patients, who they're likely to give appointments versus who they're not likely to give appointments. And there's a racial component to that, whether or not they believe your symptoms, whether or not they prescribe pain medications when appropriate or not. So all of that is a, a conversation that people want to separate from healthcare reform uh, because they're arguing sort of that we need to first uh, focus on passing uh, Medicare for all and then worry about all of the racial or, or disparities components after the fact. And I really think that, you know, that's doing a disservice. Like if there's an opportunity to tackle that now in one foul swoop, we really should. And um, you really shouldn't be telling people to, you know, uh, shut the hell up about this conversation because it's still everyone's lived experience under even public programs that they have inferior care if they're not white. And that's something that we need to tackle as a country. I'm sorry, it's something even that has been coming up lately with regard to NHS in England. So NHS is often cited as, you know, an, a, a sort of comparable example of what we would have with Medicare for all if we were to implement it here. Um, but again, there have been reports coming out not only of um, mortality issues and, and whatnot with regard to child's, uh, excuse me, with regard to birthing, so maternal issues um, and racism, but also with just regard to, in general, the healthcare services that people are receiving if they're of color um, and how that is subpar, how they're not listened to, um, how their symptoms go untreated for longer periods of time, things like that. So I think it's important that we look at other models in countries that are generally seen as multiracial, like the United States, and sort of assess where they've had issues and where they've tried to fix them, how they've remedied them, if at all, um, to definitely implement here if we were to um, institute a Medicare for All program. And I agree with you that it's something that can't just be easily waved off or waved away. Um, and unfortunately, we see pretty much any sort of constructive criticism to these programs receive that sort of treatment. Um, and I want to use that point to sort of segue into talking about immigration and foreign policy, because that's another thing that came up for me, at least, as sort of a red flag moment <laughs> last night, um, <laughs> where Jorge Ramos was obviously goading, um, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders to say something negative about Venezuela, because in the past, Bernie had sort of skirted the issue. He didn't want kind of, I mean, he would still say things like definitely on Twitter and in some of his town halls that to me sounded very much like a right-wing talking point on, on Latin American foreign policy. Um, and that I pointed out in previous podcasts about this, these uh, debates. But I would also say, especially last night um, when he was asked and sort of like called to the carpet, like, what do you think about this? And he was like, yeah, well, you know, Maduro is a dictator. Like, he called him a vicious tyrant, I believe, um, yeah. which, is 
I mean, people were like, well, he had no other choice. But, like, what does that even mean? Like, Jorge almost, I don't know. Last night it seemed to me that, I don't know, the audience sort of seemed to think that Latino men were, like, somehow specific, like super dangerous or something. Like there was like a <laughs> some sort of special force that like Julian Castro had over Biden and like that Jorge Ramos had over, you know, uh, Sanders to make them say things or make them mess up. And I don't know what that's about, but that could be for another discussion later on. Um, but it's sort of interesting to me that the optics there were focused on more than what he actually said. And, uh, you know, what he said was, regardless of how you feel about Maduro, I think it's not the kind of direction that you would want to hear someone who claims to be a democratic socialist take. Um, one could easily argue that there are um, aspects of, you know, policy, socialist policy as lived out in Venezuela that we should implement here, that we should consider, that we should actually talk about, um, and not just in Venezuela, but in other countries that, you know, have um, socialist-leaning presidents or have socialist histories, I think there's a lot that we can learn from them. So instead of making that, taking that moment to condemn um, a country or condemn a president of the country, there could have been a lot more of a discussion, I think, framed around what can, what can we learn from countries like that, but also how can we engage them better in our foreign policy, where it's not a question of intervention and constant violence and sanctions and things like that, but one of diplomacy, one of working with um, people in the region and leaders in the region um, in a way that's more positive, especially in comparison to our prior history of meddling and interference and violence. I also think that the discussion about uh, immigrants of Venezuela was very odd because for the most part, most immigrants of Venezuela actually go to neighboring countries. So they go to Brazil, they go to Colombia. Um, they're not necessarily fleeing at least in the immediate future, to the United States. Most of the people that are coming right now are coming from Central America, almost directly in result of a lot of American policy there, U.S. American policy there. Um, and so it's important for that also to be discussed. And I think there was just a really major ball dropping at that moment. Not ball dropping in a positive way, like, oh, he got his, you know, Cajones, <laughs> but in the sense that he dropped the ball in the bad way, but he didn't, you know, he could have had an opportunity to really talk about ways to improve foreign policy. There's also, I just want to say, there's also been, there have been so many articles coming out lately about what a left foreign policy could look like. And I think it's, it's as if Bernie's not necessarily, he's reading them, but like not really digesting what it could mean. And I'm going to actually include an article in the show notes. So make sure that you, if you have a moment to check it out, um, by an author who talks about some of the flaws in Bernie's immigration policy and how they actually could open up and leave space if he were to become president um, for even more fascistic responses to the immigration crisis, which I do call a crisis, but it's not their crisis, it's our crisis that we've caused. Um, and so I think that it's important for us to always kind of keep this in mind, like what kind of framing do we have coming from the Sanders camp that is one that's based in nationalism, that's one that's based in sort of a type of um, protectionism that can further separate us from other parts of the world in a way that I think somewhat mirrors conservative, um, conservative uh, attitudes around these issues. Yeah, I think he took the bait, looping back to Jorge Ramos's question, mm -hmm. is that, and he didn't have to, right? There's room to say, I don't like Nicolas Maduro, but I don't think it's our, our you know, place or our role to interfere and orchestrate his ouster, right? We can, he can say that. He doesn't have to agree with what Nicolas Maduro is doing in his country. And, you know, he can appease whatever part of the party really thinks that, you know, Maduro is bad. But 
he also needs to stake out a less interventionist foreign policy, in my opinion. I think all of them do. He seems to be the best on that, but he's still uh, sort of really keen on cyber rattling when it's convenient to him. Yeah, it's uh, foreign policy is definitely not a strength of uh, the Democratic Party. I think, and just like uh, with criminal justice, that, that there's still a strain of you know not wanting to seem weak and feeling obligated to to take a, a very a, a, like strong position and and buying into a lot of that reasoning and thinking uh, among even rank and file Democrats, not just uh, the the political representatives. And I think. Uh, uh, again, you know, it was like there was a, at one point, you know, it was, I think it was to healthcare, but, you know, Kamala Harris referenced, you know, the late, great John McCain. So I was like, <laughs> he was like, we, we got to celebrate these warmongers and, and, and like, I mean, and he was notoriously racist or had a notoriously racist position regarding the results of Vietnam. And it was like, there's just, it's this overarching uh, poisoning of uh, the, in, of any of the rhetoric uh, that might seem uh, like positive is undermined and poisoned by the other position, Bernie included, uh, with like, he has at some points taken out a more, you know, anti-interventionist position. But the, one of the things about debates and one of the reasons why Bernie, I wouldn't say is that great of a debater, is that when he's in those situations, he's un not very uh, good at succinctly kind of capturing that moment and responding in a way that... Uh, takes the kind of political mind it would to to respond as uh, as you mentioned and i think that's a weak part of his campaign and i think the positions and uh, that he actually holds whether it's you know his support of the f35 project for jobs in vermont or whether it's you know what he thinks about maduro specifically or other uh, socialists or other leaders around the world is is some of it's actually just bad, you know, <laughs> like that, that's something that I think, uh, there's a aspect of people better pay, tuned into the democratic part primary, just not wanting to really engage with or acknowledge uh, Bernie's weak points for the same reasons, uh, politically as, uh, any other of the people that are, uh, advocating for other candidates don't want to engage with their weaknesses, whether they actually personally think that that's something that needs deeper investigation or not. It just doesn't strike them as politically advantageous to do that kind of, uh, internal uh, looking and so uh, i think it's a it's a, on people that support bernie and we need it because bernie's policy just isn't that great in this arena and in several others uh to to put pressure on themselves and on the candidate to to really think about how they're responding to these types of provocations or these framings and what's the most effective for both them politically and then also uh for us generally as a society in moving the conversations forward and uh, I guess uh, one of the aspects of that uh, was uh, Castro's call for, like, Castro, everything, he wants to solve everything with a Marshall Plan. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean, again, which harkens back to some of the problems with not really reconciling what the problems with Marshall Plan were, but in, he called it a Douglas Plan. And I just think when we were also talking, when we were talking about immigration uh, and then also foreign policy, one of the other things that kind of comes to my mind was the mythologizing around September 12th of uh, uniting that kind of basically entirely dismisses uh, the xenophobia and massive uh, criminal and uh, domestic spy operation that was run, uh, Abu Ghraib, the hundreds of thousands of people, innocent 
uh, people that were bombed uh, and called collateral damage and violence, starving in Yemen, so on and so forth. All these horrific foreign policy endeavors that uh, either, you know, started immediately after or have grown out of uh, what we are intervention in the Middle East uh, since September 11th, but this kind of mythologizing around the unity and, uh, you know, the dismissing of racial prejudices and disharmony that happened after September 12th is incredibly uh, dangerous, I think, for the Democratic Party to push, especially. Yeah, there's no talk of what we united and did, essentially. The expansion of, you know, the surveillance state, the racial and ethnic discrimination that resulted from the policies we pushed, the I don't know, essential genocide of a good chunk of Iraq's population because of it. Um, that's something that the Democratic Party needed to confront. I mean, to Bernie's credit, you know, he did bring up that he opposed Iraq from the beginning. And I think that's well and good. But in terms of, you know, him as a candidate, and I think it's to not better articulate his foreign policy uh, credentials and bona fides, because that's really, I think, in my opinion, what sets him apart the most from Elizabeth Warren, because her foreign policy, in my opinion, is atrocious. And I think that he needs to bring it up more often and more clearly and succinctly, you know, and have the, you know, the moxie and courage of his convictions to truly stake out an anti-interventionist position. I don't really think that's his actual position, but I think it would benefit uh, him to do so. Right, and part of me wonders if, I mean, I think his his team is large, in large part anti-interventionist, um, but as you said, that may not be reflective of his own um, personal convictions based at least on his, some of his voting records in the past and things like that. I think though, obviously since the 90s, um, as you sort of look towards the 2010s or so, you start to see sort of a cleanup of that record. Um, he didn't vote for any of the, you know, a, what is it, AUMF, the military authorization um, funding packages. And he also, um, you know, has been really good on what's happening in Brazil. He's been good on what's happening in Yemen. Um, I would say also that he's been pretty expressive on what's happening in Honduras and things like that. But I just, I still, want to see him stray away or at least further as i agree with you i think he should he should differentiate himself by way of foreign policy but he should also do so by separating himself from rhetoric that we're used to hearing from the more right-wing side of the democrats or from white from the right in general um on certain countries um and i i I think I would say also that that includes some of his acolytes, right? So I would argue that some of the statements that were made, for example, by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, yeah. Ilhan Omar about North Korea, was kind of, or not even North Korea necessarily, but like about Trump meeting with um, Kim Jong-un, it, it can, those sorts of things can jeopardize um, you know, aspects of the peace process that's going on there. And whether they realize it or not, I mean, people see this, right? Like I think, and I think from what I had seen from several, Korean activists, Korean American and Korean based activists saying like, look, this sort of language undermines what we're working on. We understand that we don't like Trump. We don't, we don't necessarily like Kim Jong-un, but the point is that our countries are trying to come together right now. And this sort of rhetoric is not helpful for us. You know, whether, whatever you want to do with it is fine, but that's not necessarily helpful for our project. And I think that there's sometimes, um, and I see Bernie do this as well, where there's sort of, again, a recentering of U.S. priorities and U.S. needs 
over the needs and concerns of the people in the countries that we're impacting with our policies. So it's important for us to recenter those who will be affected um, by these sorts of things and really understand why, even if it's something as simple as a tweet, it can be detrimental to, especially in this era where Trump does all of his policy by tweet, <laughs> um, it can be detrimental to processes that are like long in the making. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think it's interesting because when I'm looking at which candidate I'd like to vote for, I'm going to disproportionately weigh something like foreign policy and immigration policy because that's something that's done by the executive frequently, right? There's a lot mm -hmm. of leeway to do things that are in that arena. We've seen executive orders and, you know, the president can essentially declare war now that we in the current state. I mean, that shouldn't be it according to our constitution, but they can declare war and keep it going in perpetuity. So to me, if I was Sanders, I would highlight that as part of my campaign and say, you know, you may not believe that I can get Medicare for all passed. You may not believe that I can get free college or debt forgiveness, but you can trust or you should trust that I will keep us out of wars and I will not have as draconian immigration policy as Obama, because that's something he can do. That's something within the president's power address absolutely and uh, to touch back on the debate specifically and uh, something from that and immigration as well uh, there was a moment uh, where uh, Ramos confronted Biden about you know about the separation of families and the people of cages and essentially Biden just denied it and we know like one of the first controversies uh, was uh, pictures of kids in cages getting circulated only to discover later that that was actually from the Obama administration and that uh, while it wasn't a an active form seen as a deterrent uh, to future immigrants, it was something that was happening as a result of just our poor uh, immigration policy. And so that like oftentimes there's this kind of desire to go back to how things were under Obama, which even Biden doesn't promise because Biden is definitively to the right of Obama anyway. So like and uh, it, I think. Uh, Warren is is kind of maybe questionable, but Biden for certain is to the right of Obama. So Biden doesn't offer us a chance to go back to Obama. But even if we did go back to as things were under Obama, it just takes away the the purposeful intent of the maliciousness of our border policy. It doesn't take away the the, the horrific nature of what was going on. It was uh, like the Trump administration had sent a lawyer, but they were arguing for a case that took place under the Obama administration in the in the camps where kids were essentially uh, not getting basic hygiene. And uh, the, it was the Obama administration that originally was arguing that these basic levels of hygiene weren't required to be provided by their captors, and which was the United States in this case. And so like the kind of framing around uh, where we can go, where we've been, and where we are is uh, kind of distorted when uh, someone like Biden just goes up on stage on a national audience in front of a national audience and just lies about what was happening under his uh, the Obama administration, his vice presidency. Yeah, he straight up lied and said that that you know what currently is happening wasn't happening under Obama. And sure, it wasn't happening to the degree, but it, the kids were in cages under Obama's watch, and that's something that really didn't come to the national attention until we were suddenly horrified. Uh, about it because it was happening under Trump. So that's really something that I hope he gets called out on on future debates because you know, that lie specifically did not get challenged by the moderators or other candidates, which I thought was a huge missed opportunity. I think part of the, the memo was to fawn over Obama so they didn't want to go out of their way to take any shots, but go ahead, Wendy. 
Oh, no, I'm sorry. It was my fault. Um, I, I just wanted to say fake news at some point because uh, he definitely did that. On the, I mean, that's what Biden did on the stage pretty much. He was like fake news when he was asked about immigration policy under Obama, which is, you know, like terrifying to think about because I think sometimes, again, this cult of Obama is so strong still um, to this day that sometimes people would buy that, you know, and I don't, despite all the evidence, despite immigration activists um, you know, <laughs> raising issues during that time in real time that we have on the record, reminding us right now, like I said this back in 2008, I said this back in 2009, and no one said anything. And I always think about um, two, uh, Genesette Gutierrez, I believe is her name, the yeah. woman who protested Obama, she like called him out during a speech and everyone just shat on her. Um, and she was talking about the rights of trans women in, in prison um, who were immigrants and people literally dying um, on Obama's watch and you know not being cared for. And just the fact, the way people responded to her in that moment, when we reflect on it now, I mean, she was absolutely right and it's only gotten worse, but it's just sort of nuts that when you think about it, like at that point she was you know, insulted for raising a very accurate, credible point that needed to be dealt with. And I think that um, you know, nowadays, when you try to confront even that legacy, even though he's no longer in office, it's still a controversial issue. Uh, on that note, I wanted to see you all know what the protesters were saying last night. There were some people protesting at one point, and I didn't catch what they said. Do you all know what that was about by any chance? Uh, that's what I was trying to look, to look up, actually, because I did hear it, and it happened during specifically Biden's speaking segment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I tried to, to look into that as well, and I, I re-listened back to see if I could at least make out some of the words, and I, I, I did not, I could not figure anything else out on that. Yeah, and, this, and maybe it was about immigration, because like de Blasio wasn't on stage anymore, so there wasn't, there, there likely wasn't anything about Garner family or any of that. I mean, with Biden, the only thing I could think of is like either criminal justice or immigration, just off the top of my head. It, it was immigration. So I'm, I'm looking it up. It was DACA related. So there were okay. DACA related protesters. And apparently the debate folks told him to just move on. And we heard that. So mm -hmm. sorry, the moderators told him to just move on. Um, mm -hmm. So the so they were chanting, wearing shirts that said, defend DACA, abolish ICE, citizenship, citizenship for all and we heard them during the debate that they were saying essentially that the protesters were going to be removed mm -hmm. yes okay. yeah that 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 is interesting to to find that out and i, I think it's important also just to note uh that uh when we were talking about kids in cages is that we also have a, a heavily incarcerated society as well and that yep. like juvenile detention is part of that and the conditions that are reported under the, in many of these juvenile detention facilities are also atrocious with uh, mm -hmm. you know sexual abuse, violence, and a variety of uh, you know drugs and a variety of other things that are essentially what the they're supposed to be being sheltered from are actually existing sometimes in in or are worse in the, these facilities than they would be when they would encounter out in society. And so uh, the incarceration and the carceral mentality we just talked about this in our uh, episode about with uh, some from Angela Davis, uh, selections from Angela Davis, that the carcerality of uh, the United States also plays a role in how we treat both immigrants that come into the society. You know, there was a big push uh, when that, there was the the shooting where the guy recently just had the ch uh, charges dropped uh, for on the pier uh, where it was an immigrant and essentially they wanted to jail 
immigrants that were coming over and committing crimes. And it's like, that doesn't even make sense if your concern is the cost, because it's going to cost more to jail them than it would be to just keep shipping them back to their country of origin. And so it's just like, there's a mental, a carceral mentality that pervades and we see as a solution to a lot of our problems. And so uh, that happens again, when we see it in uh, when immigrants come over with this desire to keep immigration or, or, you know, people coming across the border as a criminal act and that it can be punished as a crime, both for the practical purposes uh, politically as Trump uses them to to separate families and cause more hardship, but then also just as a reliance on a carceral, carceral mentality that we find solutions in punishment and in uh, separation from society. Yeah, and sort of jails more broadly outside of the immigration context did get brought up in the debate. Much to my surprise, I think we had, was it Amy Klobuchar and uh, Kamala Harris talking about reducing uh, sentences for nonviolent offenders, potentially releasing some. So I was a little bit surprised that they actually went there. I mean, not that I believe either one of them considering um, their records, but I'm happy that it at least got brought up. But I agree with Richard, you know, this discussion about you know, detention centers at the border is really currently disconnected from, you know, the carceral state and the carceral system as it exists in this country. And yes, there's a lot of talk about ending, you know, for-profit prisons and whatnot, but that's not the only problem. Even the nonprofit prisons are a big problem if we're going to care about criminal justice and racial justice specifically. Well, but they're nonprofits and all nonprofits are great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I yeah. mean, it, it's bizarre that, that people are limited, you know, the, I guess, racialized brutality to a profit motive when we know that that's not the case. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, I just wanted to, I guess we're getting sort of close to the close. Um, so I wanted to ask from y'all what you thought were some issues that you would have liked them. To, I mean, obviously the answer is going to be everything, um, but what you thought you would like to see them expound upon more, perhaps in future debates or town halls. Um, and also, you know, like, <laughs> are you going to watch the next debate? What are you expecting? What are you expecting from the next debate or the next round of town halls? Um, and do you think this is kind of a big question, but do you think there's any room for improvement um, between now and when people actually go to the polls that would be significant enough for people to actually believe that that change is viable, um, you know, as a voter? Uh. That's a lot. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I didn't re recall hearing anything about uh, Palestine in the foreign policy discussion. So I'd like them to tackle that. I mean, if anything, I think it'll help separate the field in terms of how they stand on it. I mean, I, I think we, we all know the people currently on this call know where they stand, but I think it would help the general public to actually hear these candidates and push them to actually articulate a position on the issue. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting that wasn't really discussed was actually, uh, well, at least it wasn't discussed in a direct way. We heard about, you know, Cory Booker being asked if he would be, if he would encourage others to be vegan and sort of bringing Bolsonaro into the conversation then. But I wanted to see whether or not, you know, there'd be a discussion about Brazil at all, not just because of Bolsonaro, but the current uh, fires that have been occurring in the Amazon and whether or not that'd be looped into a discussion about climate change. So it was interesting and I'd like to hear them you know, comment on those issues. I don't see them doing it anytime soon. In terms of me tuning into the debates, so uh, it was torture listening to this one. Um, and I 
normally don't listen to the entirety of debates. I, I did because I knew I was going to speak to you today. So I chose to live tweet through it and um, slog through it. And I don't know. Um, I was very disappointed and disinterested with what I was hearing from the candidates. I thought, you know, Biden and Harris specifically came off, uh, I'll put, to put it politely, very aloof and lost. Um, and it's painful to watch them on the debate stage. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> I, I think uh, that it's a very important issue that you bring up uh, with the Palestine. And I think uh, Bernie in particular has a unique opportunity uh, partially because of the kind of shallow identity politics that the Democratic Party uh, kind of trades in nowadays, but that his identity offers him a, a shield to be a critic of Israel, of Israel in the Israel-Palestinian, uh, uh, you know, I guess, I mean, essentially genocide, attempted genocide, but uh, I, I don't want to do too much with the framing right now. My point is just that, like, uh, that Bernie has a unique opportunity to kind of address that in a way that, uh, AOC or Ilhan Omar or other representatives and other political figures uh, don't have because their identity uh, doesn't offer them that shielding. It, in fact, entices the type of send center back type chance that and, and the violence and the threats that they received as a result of being critical of Israel in this situation. So I think it's on Bernie to, to step up and be uh, to take on that role in a way that we're definitely not going to see from any other candidates more included in my opinion. So I think that's a very important issue that I'd like to see. And that I think that's something that Bernie can work on uh, raise, like raising awareness of, and then also uh, raising among his supporters and then raising a, or staking out a solid and quality position that respects the Palestinian people's rights. And that, uh, recognizes the horrific nature of what we see being implemented uh, by Israel uh, at the human level beyond the, the legal or any or international legal level, but just at the human level, the kind of costs and the atrocities that are taking place at their hands. And then, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not, it doesn't take very too frequently. I see on my feed uh, a young Palestinian person being shot while just talking too close to the Israel border. And it, it's just, it, it's atrocious and it's horrific and it's it's not really a part of our media conversation despite our heavy heavy support of israel and arming of them and the, our support of uh, more atrocities in the middle east being yemen or elsewhere and so i think one of the things that i'd really like to see uh, when foreign policy comes up is recognition of uh, what's going on there and what we can do to put pressure on israel to to act humanely at the minimum and to recognize uh, Palestinian people's rights, uh, human rights, and then also their civil rights within the, their society. I think that's critically important. And so I'm really happy that you mentioned that and brought that up. And uh, I guess as far as future debates, hopefully we get fundraising uh, deadline on 930 and the reporting is on 1015. And like we saw a round of dropouts before this debate, I think we're going to see another round of dropouts, hopefully, and get it down to about five people, which will allow some more uh, crossing, uh, cross-examination of the deeper kind of uh, histories that these candidates have with these things. And I think that's another opportunity for Bernie to shine where he doesn't hold ideal positions, especially from, uh, from my perspective, uh, everywhere. I think uh, one thing that he does have is a consistency in his positions that uh, is going to be important, I think, for people that are going to tune into these debates to, to be 
engaged with and that because a lot of all these candidates are saying a lot of the things that we want to hear some of them not as good at saying it as others but a lot of them are saying things that we want to hear uh but we have to question their sincerity in these things and if they have a record of being sincere or of not being sincere is very important and i think that's one area where uh bernie shines above the other candidates but just generally I, as a disclaimer it's like bernie as as he sits I think struggles against Trump in an actual national election on election day. And then also it's not a solution that it, Bernie getting elected isn't uh, is, it may be a, a type of win, but it's not a, a solution to the problems that we face. The one thing that they did talk about, and I'll give credit to Warren for mentioning as well, is the deepness of the corruption of DC and how that prevents any of the things that anybody liked that they talked about happening at all. Uh, be they more moderate or uh, further to the left, uh, none of those things are going to happen with the people in Congress. And to detract from Warren's credibility on that subject, she was confronted in New Hampshire uh, about uh, the Secretary of uh, Defense, and she essentially put the blame on Republicans, despite the person that she said being basically a corrupt lobbyist for Raytheon, uh, getting 90 votes for their confirmation in the Senate, which takes a lot of Democrats to get to 90. And so uh, without a, an examination of the bipartisan nature of the corruption of D.C. and how that prevents even uh, Democratic plans under a Democratic majority, whether it's 54 seats or 60, uh, without confronting that, we're not going to get there. Bernie doesn't do it as much as I'd like, but he is getting that he, he does do it some and Warren uh, essentially bailed out and, in my opinion, lied about the lied about it and misled people to believe that it was a Republican issue rather than a, a bipartisan corruption issue that the military industrial complex runs deep and it's going to take a, a concerted effort and uh, decades of fighting in order to uproot it. And Warren doesn't seem ready for that in my opinion. So sorry for that rant, but that's my case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree with both of you guys. Um, I think definitely though, one of the reasons maybe that she didn't bring that up or go into that was because oddly so earlier in the day I had heard um, I'd been watching some news and they had said that Biden's team had literally sent some news organizations their debate plan um, and in that they had mentioned that they wanted to discuss um, Elizabeth Warren's previous record her previous fundraising records um, which you sort of touched on just now Richard but also like her job her work as a corporate attorney at some point um, which they didn't really bring up, I mean, Biden, it was Biden who was set to bring that up, didn't bring it up. So some believe that it may have just been a way to put that information out there, but like as a way to sort of sully her record, but not necessarily something that they were going to bring up during the debate, because like, why would you send your debate plan out ahead of time? It's sort of strange. Um, but I do think, you know, all of those points rec I recognize and I agree that, um, you know, like raised several conflicts of interest on her part. Um, and I think, Again, like I agree, especially on foreign policy and things like that coming from Warren. Again, I'm bringing up Warren so much just now because you guys touched on her, but also just because she's like sort of seen as the second most progressive candidate running right now um, in comparison to Bernie. So that's, mm -hmm. that'll be something worth looking out for in the future. Like if that comes up at some point, um, her sort of waffling on on matters of, of donations, where they come from, and particularly military and foreign policy on her part because of her connection with Raytheon and her having received donations from them. Um, I also agree with Hector com completely on this issue of climate change. It's just a sort of an afterthought. 
Um, they, and the way that they asked it was so ridiculous. Like, you're a vegan, Cory Booker. Tell us what you think about, you know, it was like, yes, maybe we should eat less meat. But I think he answered it well in the sense that he sort of pivoted away from talking about just like personal consumption and really kind of talked about, you know, factory farming and the industry and how things need to change on that end. So, you know, credit where credit's due for that. Um, but I do think that there needs to still be a deeper discussion of climate change and the way it connects to foreign policy. Again, as you sort of mentioned, um, so I think that's important. I was surprised, actually, and maybe because Kristen Gillibrand is not there anymore, but there was no discussion of um, abortion rights, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the quote-unquote quintessential women's issue, right? Um, I'm saying that with quotation marks because obviously all of these issues are women's issues, um, but I think that there could have been an opportunity to sort of broach that subject when they were talking about Medicare for All um, and healthcare in general, right, especially as um, rights to abortion have been cut and continuously um, getting, they're continually getting cut all around the country um, and limited. Um, and also, if I'm, you know, like continuous defunding of Planned Parenthood and other organizations that do similar work. Um, and I, I, if I recall correctly, I've seen something recently where like Planned Parenthood is basically just going to shift over entirely to a private funding model um, because they, they know that like their, their days are numbered in terms of federal funding. Um, so, you know, they're going to be really, really reliant on donations and things like that. Their own problems aside, um, but I think it's important for us to kind of keep that in the back of our heads. What is that debate going to shape up to look like? Um, and how are the candidates going to frame that? Especially people like Biden, because he had some, you know, again, going back and forth on this issue in the past, which like Clinton had as well. Um, not necessarily firmly coming down on the side of the right to choose and the rights towards reproductive options. Um, and instead sort of just saying, just kind of going with whatever, whatever the Senate or the House agrees to. Um, the last thing I think that, you know, I, I don't know, I thought was, was missing, obviously, um, and I'm always going to say this is an in-depth discussion of foreign policy. I think there will be room for it in upcoming debates. Hopefully they do go into it. I agree 100% about the neglect of discussing um, Palestine, and it's particularly noticeable because Israel has um, elections coming up, and there's already been another push, once again, of like, you know, nativist sentiment, xenophobic sentiment. And when I say xenophobia, in this case, I mean Israeli conservative um, people running for office constructing this idea of the Arab as a foreign entity, the Palestinian as a foreign entity that has to be stamped out. Um, so it's worth kind of keeping an eye on that if it comes up at all um, in future debates will be <laughs> interesting to see. Hopefully it does, but I'm not sure I'm going to like the responses from a lot of people um, on that. And yeah, those are those are my thoughts. Just like what I what I would like to see going forward, and maybe topics that they should touch on. As far as you know, what it may mean for voters, and like if they can trust these people to move to towards change in a positive direction and actually stick to it, I would be pessimistic there. And I say this as someone who's like I, I've already said, declared on the record, like I'm going to vote during the primary for a Democrat. You guys probably know who that is already. I most likely will not vote for a Democrat during the general. I might vote for, you know, some other candidate, depending on who appears from the third parties um, on the left. But I, I'm very transparent about the fact that, you know, I supported Bernie in 2016 during both, you know, during the primary. Um, and I think that there 
what's frustrating in this process is that like everyone doesn't know that about me and so sometimes when people see my criticism of Bernie they think I'm like a Kamala supporter or something which I think is hilarious like <laughs> to make major assumptions guys like, I guess it's because I'm a black woman you know like oh she must support like these democratic establishment candidates um and that's a, a shitty assumption like because obviously I'm like pretty firmly on the left um uh, but I think that you know I just wish that Bernie weren't the only option in terms of like some semblance of left candidacy, right? Um, I wish that we had people pushing him from the left on that stage. And I wish that we had candidates who were beyond what he envisions. Uh, because I think for some people, once they get Medicare for all, once they get, you know, college uh, tuition remission or whatever, they're, they're good, they're done. And I think that they'll be satisfied with that without necessarily pushing for more. And so my concern is when someone like him gets an office, which would be a major relief on the domestic front on many points, I still wonder what does it, what does it look like to then push that person once he's in office, right? How can we continue to push Bernie to be better on foreign policy, to be better on even some domestic policies? Um, and you know, I mean, that's why watching the debates has been so frustrating because it's like, this can't be our only option. And that's, oh, one more thing. I just <laughs> wanted to add, <laughs> sorry, it's like my brain is adding all this stuff. I apologize. But no. I think after watching last night, I have, I have like pretty much lost all hope in the Democrats winning against Trump. Um, and that sounds really ominous, but like, and I know it's early and maybe they, they have some chance to make up for lost time and do better. But I am really scared um, in terms of what this what this next election is going to look like, um, because I think that they're going to try to push Biden. And if Biden doesn't end up with the nomination, even if we get someone like Elizabeth Warren or Sanders, I don't think anyone is fully prepared for what kind of candidate Trump is. It's almost like they've been asleep, uh, not watching what's going on. I, I don't think, you know, if Bernie cannot stand up for himself during an election against friendly fire, arguably, then I'm concerned about what that would look like with someone like Trump, because there were several opportunities last night where he should have interjected, he should have said something, he should have expounded upon certain issues, he should have been clearer. Um, people gave the excuse in my mentions that he had a sore throat, but like, I'm sorry, I mean, this is not, this is a presidential election, like, I would be dead on that stage and still trying to push a point, right? Um, and so we have to be very cautious, I think, in the next few months, in terms of like, making sure that people we know, that we talk to them, and that we try to at least educate people around issues, even if it's not a specific candidate, if we're at least pushing them to understand, like, okay, listen, think about what you have right now. What can you improve in your, what can be improved in your life? What kind of candidate would you want? What kind of areas in your personal daily life do you think are challenges that you would like to see remedied, or at least made a little bit better, you know, ameliorated in some way? Um, because I think sometimes talking about it through candidates doesn't help. I've seen that in my own experience, like talking to family members and whatnot who are planning to vote for Biden because they just want to get Trump out. And I'm <laughs> like, yo, are you watching these debates? Like, man can't even put together a sentence. So he's definitely not ready to go against someone like Trump. Um, and so, yeah, those are my, yeah, those are my projections. <laughs> he's talking about playing records for children. I mean, that's how disconnected he is from, you know, this reality we currently live on where he thinks people are currently playing records still i mean uh, <laughs> yeah uh, and also just like that that all that's another area of like total breakdown right because the there was a there's been a there's excuse me there's been a discussion online about how like 
that framing then set up to sort of blame black mothers for not being good parents. I was like, who's on stage right now? Jay-Z? Like, what is happening? Um, <laughs> a reference to his and his recent talk for the NFL where he blamed single single parent households of black women uh, for, for police brutality somehow. Um, but paid yeah, some but I think... white woman to cut off some kids' dreadlocks, which anyone, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> that'll yeah. show them. That'll show the police. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so, so I, I am concerned about, you know, like we have to, I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to talk to our family members. We have to talk to our peers. I see, I mean, when I go on Facebook, it's a completely different world. Um, the way that people are deciding to vote for, you know, their favorite candidate or whatever, it's just like a completely different set of concerns. And so, um, definitely don't see Twitter as the end all be all of political discourse because it is not. And it can give us a very false sense of hope and confidence. And I think that's why people got so mad at me last night when I was like, I don't think this is a good sign. And I don't think Bernie did as well as he should have um, because people don't like to hear the truth. <laughs> I don't think people like to hear um, what could be a precursor for failure in the near future. But yeah, they all I'm need wrong. they all need to be tougher. I mean, Trump is not going to go easy on them. He's going no. to be dishonest. He's going to be aggressive. And if they're trying to kumbaya their way through this debate, the primary debates, which should be preparation for the general election debate, they're not going to get it. They're not going to no. be able to hug it out with uh, Trump. We saw Clinton fail at that. So I hope that they're not trying to repeat that strategy. Oh, they are, though. Because um, you've already seen, I mean, that's why I was joking and saying, like, apparently Latino men had superpowers last night and were ex incredibly powerful and angry because the responses to Julian Castro's having pointed that out, that this is a primary, we have to actually have a debate. And also to his pointing out that Joe Biden was literally lying and con contradicting himself on stage, the response to that was, oh, don't be mean to Joe Biden. And I'm well, like, yeah. are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you had Rahm Emanuel calling him mean and petty. And I thought, well, that's yeah. rich. Coming from Rahm Emanuel, the meanest right? and, <laughs> right. and pettiest person <laughs> in politics right now. Yeah, um, and a murderer, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, your point on, on Bernie uh, needing improvement and, and, like, being able to push him and, like, just kind of a disappointment in that this is the 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 best of the bunch uh kind of rings true to me in that like when i look at bernie and then on race you know he's got someone like sean king without opening that can of worms <laughs> out there <laughs> out there is just like this is this is this is the best i have to look forward to it's like because well kamal harris is just gonna put me in prison and it's like <laughs> joe biden too and it's like Gordon <laughs> doesn't know anything about these issues, and she thought she was Native American up until like uh, a couple six months ago or something. So like right. this is <laughs> this is where we're at, uh, and it's like so like that just stri strikes me as, as frustrating. And then the other point that I think is important that I think some Bernie supporters like I guess just need to hear is just like if Bernie lose lost to Trump, which is potentially a, a potential outcome if you know the establishment abandons them and 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 you get a bunch of negative press in the media and the the movement isn't there in the in the people that that's basically a death knell for progressive politics in our two-party system like mm -hmm. somebody like bernie would never will not be considered again for as long as it's been since mondale like that that's that's what you're looking at and by then climate apocalypse is in full gear and 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 we've doomed grandchildren to a potentially uninhabitable world like mm -hmm. so so like that's the kind of the the 
the two the friction for me is like you know i have you know whether it's a foreign policy is issue on race or on race or whatever i have that with all these other candidates lead me to certain doom so it, it's it's moderately you know potentially staving off that certain doom and dealing with all these other negative things or all those negative things plus certain doom and that's not a very a choice that i like and knowing that there's 250 <laughs> people plus that are registered for the democratic primary i'm sure some of them had some better ideas on these things that just weren't ever part of the process because they didn't have the proper credentials or the proper life experience or whatever and that is just it, it, it isn't frustrating to no end for me that, that i'll leave it at that <laughs> yeah well, listen, thank you both for being here. Hector, thank you so much for being a guest on the Left Pocket Project podcast and giving us thank your you feedback on these god-awful primary debates. Um, <laughs> we appreciate you, you know, slugging through it, live tweeting it, following along. You did better than me because, like I said, I just I kind of checked out around hour two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I was actually, I was, I checked out around hour two. Because the, the mm. whole debate was like what two hours and forty five minutes, um, yeah. so somewhere around hour two, I just like my eyes glazed over and I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Um, I did continue to watch, but how much I absorbed is questionable. Um, but yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you, Richard, as well, and of course, thanks to all of our listeners, donors, supporters. Uh, we thank you very much. Appreciate all that you do for us and with us. And uh, thanks so much again. Have a good one, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Good luck out there. Thank you.